Blog Talk Radio. They're not 
they don't want to be venerated like Eastern gurus, and they shouldn't be. And, and uh, yet, because of this particular situation that arose back in the mid-1700s, that's uh, a number of groups on this model ended up getting in that situation, and unfortunately it has, has put, us, put us all in that sort of a light. So let's go back and uh, take a look back to the, the thrilling days of yesteryear and examine what happened. Now, this all starts really with, with masonry in England around about 1700. And uh, the Masonic movement was just getting started then. Now, I think we most of you understand that, or that have followed our, our program, you understand that, that Masonry was, was formed for a number of reasons, uh, and becoming some sort of a cult was not one of them. The idea was uh, to have an interreligious society Interreligious, well, a gentleman's dinner and drinking club, actually, where we're with an interreligious format, uh, based on the Bible, of course, where people from these different religious sects and uh, could get together and, and agree not to, to argue about religion and not to argue about politics and just have good fellowship and try to find something common in the Bible, in all their their religions, and then be able to actually, you know, kind of do business, and you know, and and it, it, this this occurred in the aftermath of the British Civil War, and the British were, as a result of that Civil War, they had had enough. The British people, and especially the British middle class, they had had enough of all of this religious bigotry and 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 all of this killing each other just because uh, your Bible is written a little different than the other guys. And they, they'd had enough of it, and they wanted to, and they were moving forward, and they were progressive, and and, and they were uh, developing what we call liberal philosophy. Now, uh, that was the liberal philosophy of John Locke in the case of the British, and John Locke was liberal but he still believed in private property, and, and so British Masonry uh, was followed along that line, and it had to get the uh, approval of the Church of England, and it needed the approval of the government. So they uh, made the uh, they made the you know the Duke of Windsor became the being Grand Master, and then of course that was just a sort of a formality. And they they elected a different uh, deputy grandmaster every year, uh, but so you see that British Masonry was just not set up as a cult. It was set up very very conservative and and uh, and uh, by, but the third degree, which was what started speculative masonry as opposed to stone masonry, is that third degree. And that third degree, of course, is hermetic. It's very hermetic. And it's very symbolic, the murder of Hiram of Biff, as you know, and, and all of that. And uh, so the seeds that could be abused 
were there. But uh, in British masonry, and of course in American masonry too, which came from British masonry, uh, there was... As long as the structure was maintained and and the relationship with the church and the government was okay and all of that, there was no danger of it becoming a cult. Well, that's fine, okay. But what happened when this Masonic idea very quickly jumped over to Europe? Oh, boy. So then the Europeans at that time were, were not... They were a little behind the British, a little bit behind the British in in um, in getting toward. I hate to use that word democracy, it's a propaganda word, but I mean, but, 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 but because we all kind of think about it that way, let's let's say the the uh, Europe was not. They were fighting against the democratic movement. They were fighting against the republican movement, whereas Britain was trying to ease their way into it. And all there, and Britain was on the verge of having a constitutional monarchy, and that what I call you know constitutional monarchy. That's a republic with a king sitting in the chair, you know, and and, and king just kind of kind of sits there in the chair, and, and and the republic does everything. That's a constitutional monarchy. But they and the Britain was the British were heading in that direction, and their and, and their masonry, and our masonry over in the United States. Uh, was kind of in that in that mode. It was liberal, but it was still it was John Locke's liberalism. It wasn't the continental liberalism of Rousseau and Helveticus and those uh, those proto communists. In other words, uh, so what you had in Europe uh, with these these radical philosophers, and and they were advocating something much more radical. And as you know, that culminated in the French Revolution, which was a uh, well, personally, more I think it did more harm than it did good. But anyway, uh, you know, it, it was certainly a radical revolution. And so, consequently, when Masonry, the Masonic idea, jumped over to the continent, oh boy, they, they, the Continental uh, Masons or those people who said they were Masons or whatever, they just they just took it and they they, they did very very different things with it. Now, one of them, one of the things they did, there was a, uh, well, he wasn't exactly a Frenchman, but he, he, he claimed a Scottish uh, descent or whatever, and he called himself the Chevalier Ramsey. And around about 1710 uh, or something like that, well, no, a little later than that, perhaps, because, yeah, yeah, well, sometime before 1720, Ramsey got up among all of these French uh, would-be Masons and all, and he gave this lecture, and he said that really Masonry is descended from the Knights Templar, and he came up with this elaborate legend and all of this goes all the way back to the, all the way back to Enoch and everything else, and, and, and the Knights Templar, and of course they, they, uh, they were the, the, the noble knights that got purged and they escaped and they went to sit out in Scotland and, and, and they are the ones who originally uh, told the stone, gave the stonemasons all their secrets and all this business. And, he, and Ramsey's lecture was, made a tremendous, tremendous influence on continental masonry. And so this whole Knight Templar tradition when masonry starts right about then is when with, with Ramsey and his lecture. Well, now, that's very mysterious, and it creates a nobility, and we get this bloodline stuff and all this business. That's where it starts. 
you know, there's no bloodlines in British and American masonry, anything like that. But with the Knights Templar, of course, Bonnie, Prince Charlie, oh boy, yeah. I mean, this is where you start all this bloodline stuff. And so that was Ramsey over in France. But, uh, oh boy, this thing got over to Germany. And it got over to Germany by about the middle of the 1700s. And a, a German mystic and, and, and high-ranking mason, because masonry spread like a weed all over the place, and I found him by the name of, he was a baron, and he was Baron von Hund. And Baron von Hund, he decided that he was going to start a Masonic rite called the Rite of Strict Observance. Now, a strict observance, basically to von Hund's version of, you know, the three degrees, regular degrees of masonry. But beyond that, von Hund adopted Ramsey's uh, Scottish uh, the Templar uh, legend and had filled out a bunch of advanced degrees uh, where, I had, where you became the Sir Knights and, and, uh, and the Templar tradition and all that. Well, all of this was okay, and of course we, you know, we Scottish Rite uh, today replicates a lot of these old uh, continental degrees are actually replicated in Scottish Rite, a little bit less radical than they were then, but but still. So this is strict observance is, is fine, and 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 von Hund gets this going, and it gets very popular, and it and he's got it going all over Germany, but then. Von Hund became prematurely, uh, he became prematurely senile. He died at 55, but before he died, he got he started getting weak and he started getting absent-minded one thing or another, and and so he he turned his jurisdiction and his right over to a mysterious character. And I'm not going to get into this guy's background because it might get controversial. But anyway, this mysterious character who called himself Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, because obviously he wanted to sound like he was from Scotland. And uh, so Johnson took over strict observance. And Johnson was um, a very shady character. He was what was tactfully referred to in those days as an adventurer. You know, and um, anyway, Johnson decided that because he he didn't want his background checked into and he didn't want people knowing who he was and what was going on, that he would become the unknown the unknown grandmaster. He would be he would be the grandmaster that nobody would know, but they would have to swear allegiance to. Well, uh, Johnson, well, you know, Johnson, I'm wondering, because with Johnson, whether that became a German word, a uh, Masonic word for something, because uh, those of you who have seen the, the the Big Lebowski, the film The Big Lebowski, remember those crazy Germans, and, 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 and they're going to... They go. They attack the dude in his apartment, and they say, "If you do not give us the money, we will call off your Johnson." You know, where do they get this Johnson problem? And they're crazy Germans too. Uh, but anyway, uh, but anyway, Johnson 
decided that he that he was going to be the secret master and probably to keep from going to jail or something like that. But anyway, he's going to be the secret master of, of the strict observance. So, not only was he going to be the secret master, but he changed the procedure and he changed the character of strict observance to the point where if you petitioned for admission, whether you were a Mason or not, they told you you have been conditionally accepted. Go out at midnight and stand on the street corner and wait with a rose in your lapel and say nothing to anyone. And then at the stroke of midnight, a black carriage would roll by and stop and open up and a couple of burly guys with masks would get out and they would drag you into the carriage and then they would blindfold you and then they would ride all over town making you think you were going a long way and then take you to the lodge that they that they had, were using and then they when when you got the blindfold off you were sitting in the chamber of reflection staring at a skull with a dagger stuck in it and and and, and they stuck they stuck this this uh, parchment under your nose and say, you will sign eternal allegiance to the secret master whom you will never know. Oh, okay, okay, I do. I do. So you sign that, sissy. And then you're in, you don't know what you're signing and you don't know who the secret master is and you don't know, and you have to obey him and, oh boy. Well, you know, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think that Johnson could get away with this. But... In 1740, 50 or so in Germany, oh, they loved it. They just loved it. You know, when the Germans, you know, the Fuhrer could do the wrong. I mean, anyway, they just loved this thing. And it got very popular. And people, you know, go out standing out there so on the street corner, you know, with a rose in their lapel, you know, and scared half out of their wits. And they loved it. So... That was the first of the, of the secret masters, you see. Now, the guy who observed this down in Bavaria and looked at this and, and thought, hmm, I can use this idea. And that was a fellow by the name of Adam Weishaupt who started, uh, very quickly, he started his own um quasi-Masonic jurisdiction called the Bavarian Illuminati, or the Perfectibilists. And they used very similar tactics. They did not, you, you didn't know what you were getting into, and, and all you knew, all you knew was that this was going to be the, the, this was going to be the true Christianity, real Christianity. This wasn't going to be, yeah, we started them off that way. And then gradually, as as they progressed through the and the Illuminati had a cell system and a mentor system. You know, you, you, the whole thing was set up like a communist apparat. In fact, that was the communist. You know, Bolshevik apparats were based upon the Illuminati cell system. Uh, but as you progressed in this thing, Weishaupt, who was a confirmed atheist, and basically he wanted to create a network of of um, atheistic robots who would 
who would help him take over the world. This is what he wanted to do. And and, and uh, he was a follower of Rousseau and Helvetius. And he believed, he firmly believed, uh, Helvetius especially, that all men were created equal. Uh-huh. And so did Jefferson bought into that too. But here's, here's the problem with that. All men are not created equal. They're all different. As, you know, men, men, people are born, some people are born stupid, some people are born geniuses. It doesn't have anything to do with their heredity particularly. It's just that, 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 that nobody is created equal. But according to Helvetius, they were. Yes, blanks late. And, and, and environment and, and privilege has, has all, everything to do with it. So consequently, we have to level, we have to completely level the playing field, and we have to take away all private property, and we have to take away all privilege from everybody, and then everybody has an equal chance. And this is what Weishaupt believed in. But what Weishaupt believed in this, but he didn't, he knew he couldn't immediately tell people this. He had to lure them through all these secret degrees to get them into it. Well, this spread, they had a, they got a lot of very prominent people. One of the reasons why they did get prominent people in the, in the Illuminati was because there was a tremendous uh, abuse of power from the church and the monarchies, and, and it really was. It was a very unjust situation. And so uh, Anne Weissout just kind of spooned this stuff out. He didn't, you know, he didn't tell them the whole deal until they went and got up into it, and then he selected them to advance. Well, what, un, what finally undid him was he, he knew he wasn't really a mystic because he, he didn't like any kind of superstition at all. So, so he was, his, his rituals were kind of flat, and he wasn't really an inspired mystic. So he brought in a, another one of these barons, a German baron, who happened to be a Rosicrucian by the name of Kingy, Baron Kingy. And he, you know, commissioned Baron King. He said, okay, well, he, write the rituals for me. You know, you're a good mystic and you, you and all that. Well, King, he got into it and started doing it and trying to fix up the rituals uh, to make them a little more esoteric and all that. But meanwhile, the more and more King finds out about it, the more disgusted he gets with it because you know, he does believe in God and he does believe in, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, man's right to, to freedom and all that, to have what he, what, to have the fruit of his labors. And, you know, he believes it. And he is, frankly, very, very upset about what it was, about what Weishaupt is doing. So Kingy, after oh, about six, seven years of this, and they go, they grow up to about three thousand members and all. He goes public and outs Weishaupt. Well, at that point, when King does that, the whole thing collapses. And Weishaupt, and, and overnight, I mean, the Bavarian police raided Weishaupt's place and they uh, and they stole. Well, they didn't steal. I mean, they confiscated all of his files and everything. And and he was. Well, you know, he took a little jail time, but not much. And then they actually gave him back his his chair of canon law at the, at the University of Bavaria. So they didn't really want to treat him too badly, but they sure wanted to put him out of business, which they did. Now, uh, over in this country, uh, by this time, we had established our little republic and had our little, it wasn't a revolution really, it was a war of secession because we didn't really revolt. We just, we seceded 
and we shot a lot of redcoats doing it, but I mean, we we you know, we we succeeded, and um, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, he he as much of the Illuminati as he knew, he liked, and he put it, you know, we even got that all men are created equal in the Constitution, uh, that's uh, the Bill of Rights and all that. That's it comes that's that's twice out in Alvarez, but uh, but Washington, George Washington who was Grand Master of Masons in the the United States, he just said, we will not let these people in the country. No Illuminati, and that's it. He was dead set against it. So consequently, we were, American Masonry was spared from from the Illuminati. I know our conspiracy theories, people, they don't don't understand that, or they they skip that over when they do their research, but that's the truth. Okay, but, but this is part of this, this is part of what goes into coming from von von well from Johnson and the strict observance, and then giving Weiss out the idea that he can do this, and then Weiss out does this this uh, creates this this cult, and and where people swear allegiance to something that they don't even know what it is, but they're gonna they're gonna die for it and all that, and then uh, now at this point. Let's take this toward uh, just about toward the uh, uh, the latter half of the 1800s, the 19th century, and a young woman called uh, who called herself Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Well, we all know how much of an influence she had on everything. Now, here is something that isn't generally known about Helena Blavatsky. When she was 19 years old, she was initiated into a co-Masonic version of Johnson's strict observance. Imagine that, this 19-year-old Russian girl, very mystical, very, very impressionable, and she has gone through Johnson's secret type initiation. Now, this set her up for uh, creating what what became known as the Ascended Masters, and I'll tell you how that came about. When she was in in London many years later, and she was just getting started into her spiritualist uh, period, she met uh, she met a man, a remarkable man, by the way, a man who, if we had to take a a, a living human being and say he was a master. He certainly filled the bill. This, the man she met was Ranbar Singh. Now, Ranbar Singh was not a Sikh. You know, all, all, all Sikhs are Singh, but actually Ranbar Singh was not a Sikh. He was a Reform Hindu. But he was the Maharaja of Kashmir. Very, very wealthy. And and very politically astute, and and a guru in his own right. And this man was a consummate, a master of politics and 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 uh, esoteric science and, and uh, religious philosophy. He he spoke. He read and spoke six languages. He was he was. And he had a tremendous charisma. He, this this man really was what we would call a master 
if we wanted to use that term. Now, he met young Helena Blavatsky when she was in her spiritualist phase. And he made, of course, a tremendous impression on her. And he invited her to come to India, my dear, and we will we will take care of your developments and I will be your mentor. Oh boy. She was really uh, she was really impressed. So she eventually decamped India and took Ranbar Singh up on his offer. Now the background on this is uh kind of interesting. That Ranbar Singh is up in Kashmir. He's the Maharaja of Kashmir. Now his brother in law was also a guru, was a Sikh. And uh, his brother-in-law eventually became Kudhumi, of course, and, and Ron Singh, as you can imagine, became the Master Maurya. But here's how it went about. Here's how it happened. Ron Singh was... He got along with the British, and he managed to be on the British side during the Sepoy Mutiny, so he saved his kingdom. But he didn't like the British with their missionary work in India. And the British Raj, after the Sepoy Mutiny especially, the British Raj favored in in, in the administration, uh, the government, and government jobs and everything else, they favored Hindus that converted to Christianity. And they were trying, you know, in, con- in consort with British churches, they were trying to Christianize India. And Ranbar Singh was very much against that. And Helena Blavatsky was uh, professed to be a Theravada Buddhist. Actually, she she was a kind of a. It was actually more like Ranbar Singh's Reformed Hinduism, but but that's what she professed to be. And but she also did not like Christianity. And so Ranbar Singh. I uh, could use the term. I mean, he bankrolled her. He literally bankrolled the Theosophical Society in India. But he told, but however, at the same time, uh, Helena Blavatsky's Russian, and uh, and she got a following in Russia too. Her sister running a church up there, her, her organization. And the British were having a Cold War at the time with the Tsar Tsarist Russia. And you know, along the border up there in the Himalayas, up there north of Kashmir and the Palmyras and, and over in the Himalayas and all that. They had even, uh, in 1904, they even invaded Tibet because they thought there were Cossacks up there. But uh, the result was that um, Blavatsky's activities, being funded by Ranbar Singh, uh, attracted the attention of Lord Cromer, who was the... British Viceroy, and he was some—he was kind of paranoid. And Lord Cromer, um, Lord Cromer, jumped to the conclusion that Blavatsky was a czarist agent, and that she was being handled by that notorious Buryat Lama master spy, Agwan Dorshif. Well, Agwan Dorshif is 
you know, was he was a legend in his own time, I'll tell you. But but uh, but no, I don't think Blavatsky probably never even met Aguad Dorshif. But Lord Cromer was, you know, he was, con- and so he had her followed. He had pundits, you know, Indian intelligence guys following her all over the place. And and of course, Ranbir Singh knew this. So Ranbir Singh um, had already sent her up there to a year in Tibet to study with one of the near monasteries just across the border. And Ranbir Singh told her, said, well, if you're going to use my teachings, then you can't have me here in Kashmir, and you can't reveal who I am. Uh, so if you want to use my teachings, which you know, I'd like you to do, uh, seeing as I'm paying, you know, supporting you, then you're going to have to move me. You're going to have to give me a give me another name and 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 move me to Tibet. Well, Blavatsky had to go along with it, so she called him Moria and and moved him to Tibet. Had his uh, letters, which are quite good. I mean, his letters are marvelous, and and you know, and you can tell that the man is. You could tell there's a man. Well, I don't want to call him a master because that implies, you see, as a result of all of this, that implies that he's kind of supernatural. Actually, Ron, Ron Bar Singh was not supernatural at all, but he was a tremendous uh, teacher and, and um, certainly, as far as a living, breathing human being is concerned, he was about as masterful as you could get. But uh, he... Um, there and he's supposed to be Moria. Well, what he's writing is just not, it's just not Tibetan Buddhism. It's just not. And frankly, that held me off from theosophy for, for, for the years and years and years I, until I found out what was really behind, behind uh, Moria. I just I couldn't warm up to theosophy at all because I knew it wasn't Tibetan Buddhism. I was familiar with Tibetan Buddhism. In fact, I even I even studied with some Tibetans, and I, oh, gee, this isn't Tibetan Buddhism. Well, it turns out, no, it isn't, but that's what the situation that Blavatsky was up against. Now, what this resulted in, though, is the creation of something kind of similar to Johnson and the Strict Observance the secret master that you swear allegiance to, and you don't know who he is. And, and but Blavatsky went a step further with it with Ron Bar Singh, and and Ron Bar Singh or or Moria became an ascended master. Oh boy, he's on the astral. Uh, okay. This is where the secret chiefs get started. Okay, so Blavatsky eventually goes back to England, and uh, while she's there, um, uh, Anna Kingsford, who was originally a you know a theosophist, uh, wasn't Western enough for her. She liked Christianity, and she didn't she didn't like you know. So Anna Kingsford broke loose and started the Hermetic Society. And uh, and that, of course, had quite a bit of influence on the Golden Dawn, which got started. And the Golden Dawn is the same thing. But William Butler Yeats and Mathers and Westcott and all of them, they all belonged to the Theosophical Society, but they wanted to have something more Western. They didn't want to have you know, They didn't want to be anti-Christian. They wanted to have something more Western, and they wanted to have it more based on Western traditions. So they they 
found it, this the golden dawn. Well, Lulaski was so powerful that they had to get her blessing in order to get the golden dawn off the ground. Well, so Blavatsky forced them, literally forced them, to sign a declaration that the Golden Dawn was being being directed by powers beyond those that were sitting at this meeting or something worse to that effect. In other words, she literally, literally forced them to have secret chiefs. Well, Mathers, of course, being a mid-eccentric, oh boy, was he! You know, uh, but he, you know, he was all for it. Uh, Westcott was a little uh, wondering about it, and and because it isn't Masonic, it's it's just not Masonic at all. And the Golden Dawn was a kind of a quasi or paramasonic organization, and they really didn't want to do this. What they did is they created a a fictitious charter myth. I think most everybody's familiar with that. They created this fictitious charter myth where they had um, this Fräulein Springle, who was supposed to be a 90-year-old continental Rosicrucian, who who, uh, who authorized them to use this British, very, very obviously British cipher manuscript that they come up with. And obviously... Uh, Fräulein Sprengel was a, was a blind for Anna Kingsford, who had just died. They all knew Anna Kingsford, and you know, and so. And Anna King, they even used Anna Kingsford's uh, her magical name, uh, which for uh, for Fräulein Sprengel. And so this was a harmless hoax. I mean, it was it was a, you know, it was a convenient hoax, and all the you know the authors all knew it. And, and I think most of the rank and file in the Golden Dawn were aware that it was a device. It was like the Hiram O'Biff story or like Christian Rosenkreutz. Or, you know, we come up with a, with, with a charter myth, and you're not expected to think it's real. You just It's the charter myth, you know, okay. So they did this, and, but, however, Blavatsky had literally forced them to, to uh, on into the secret chief thing. Well, Mathers got, as you all know, I mean, uh, Sam Mathers was, and his wife both, uh, they, they they were, uh, well, they were a bit dingy. I think one of the reasons why they were was they they decided they would never have sex. They would just they would just be affectionate, and the both of them were highly highly sexual people. <laughs> and, and, and that so what they ended up doing was they ended up. That they ended up driving themselves crazy with sexual frustration. Uh, well, that's my theory, anyway. Uh, but uh, but they they then Mathers in his in his uh, well in his personal delusions, he he believed he was in touch with the secret chiefs, and he declared that he was. And he said, I I I'm in charge of the, the Golden Dawn because I'm in touch with the secret chiefs. Oh boy. So after that, and after matters finally lost it and, and all that, then everybody started going after the secret chiefs. Well, you know, the secret chiefs, according to Golden Dawn lore, are just like what Ron Barsay ended up being, and that is an ascended master. In other words, this is really, when you get down to it, this, is, makes, this makes it a cult. A cult, not just a cult, a cult. 
when you have ascended masters. And, uh, all right. Yeah, well, yes, and only on only me, the temple chief. I'm the only one in touch with them, and they're not in touch with you. And then if you come in there and say, "Well, yes, they are," no, they're not. And, <laughs> and so you have the secret chief battles, and everybody is now. Now, this is uh, the point here I'm making is that when this whole thing started out, nobody was supposed to claim supernatural dispensation. We were all supposed to be students. We were all supposed to be, you know, to do this thing on a, uh, in a human sort of a way. Oh, well, sure, you can be inspired and all that, but, but you're not supposed to, to be a, a master or you're not supposed to be a, uh, in touch with the secret chiefs or anything like that. But that's how it ended up. Yeah, for not not for all groups. Now, and I don't mean to say that, but this is how it went, how it came about. Now, um, you know, really, when you get down to it, uh, it is still going on today in some areas. I had a, well, he, yeah, I had a Golden Dawn Temple chief, and uh, his temple was not here in this country. It's overseas. But, but uh, you know, he, one time, he, um, yeah, and he whispered in my ear. He said, poke. I'm in touch with the secret chiefs. And I said, well, yeah, so am I, and so is everybody, because, oh, gosh, children got to have them secret chiefs. He didn't think that was funny at all, because he really thought he was in touch with the secret chiefs. Well, i got to tell you right now, in case anybody thinks I'm in touch with the secret chiefs, no. What a secret chief is, if you're in touch with one, he is your, your, or could be, your holy guardian angel. Everybody, you know, in our in our tradition goes through his holy, or her holy guardian angel retreat, and that's your channel to God. But the last thing in the world you want to do is think your holy guardian angel is everybody else's holy guardian angel. You're not. It's just yours. And that's why I said when I, you know, when it's, Paul said to me, so I'm in touch with the secret chiefs. And I says, well, so are we all, because we all got to have secret chiefs. Now, um, let me make a point here about the difference between between inspiration and and uh, secret chiefs. Um, inspiration is an artistic phenomenon. And by the way, while we're at it, we're talking about inspiration, because a lot of people don't understand this. Uh, a, a scientist by the name of Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I strongly urge any thoughtful people to read that book, because what Kuhn proves, we had to read that in anthropology, by the way, what that book proves is that all of the great scientific discoveries and revelations in this world, every one of them has been a result of revelation, not constant path of experimentation, as the scientists would like you to believe, and as the rational humanists would like you to believe. It's not that way at all. The guy wakes up in the morning, and he has the solution to the problem, and it's not, it's not along the lines of, that he was experimenting. And this goes on over and over and over and over and over again. Inspiration 
it, scientists have inspiration. Artists certainly have inspiration. Musicians have inspiration. And magicians and mystics have inspiration. But it doesn't mean that they are automatically infallible or they're automatically some kind of a master. Boy, whenever anybody calls me a master, it makes me, it, it raises the hairs on the back of my neck because I, I, I know from past experience and also from philosophy that unless I, unless I get away from that person or unless I get that person straightened out, that person's going to turn on me like a, like a rattlesnake. And, and Cleopatra said, and, and uh, you know, she was one of the most brilliant women in, women in history, and Cleopatra said, beware of the person who puts you up on a pedestal because they will inevitably become disillusioned and they will try to destroy you. So uh, you don't want to be, if you're going to run a magical organization or something like that, you don't want to be a master. Now, once in a while, if somebody wants to call me and say, hello, maestro, okay, that's all right. I don't mind that because that's that's like, that's the same kind of deference you pay to an orchestra conductor. You know I mean? But not, no, 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 not master. And, and, uh, and but like I say, inspiration. Inspiration is is universal. Inspiration comes to, I would say, at least uh, at least a third of the human human race. And how now? Maybe more than that. It may be people. There may be a lot of people having inspirations, and we never know about it. You know, and and it's what you do with your inspiration that's important. You know, it's, and and and, uh, and but you you are but the person who is inspired is otherwise a normal human being. Like for instance, Wagner. Oh boy, I love Wagner's music. You know, and 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 I, I you know. Uh, Wagner's music is just, just yeah, I love it, but I don't necessarily love regard Wagner because he was not a very nice person. And the same thing can be applied to Mozart. Mozart was a little kind of a, well, I don't want to use the term, but he, he, he was a, a moral, uh, Mozart had the morals of an alicac. But he was but he was a child prodigy and he's one of the most talented musicians who ever lived. And I love his music. So you know we we should we should revere the person's work and consider it an art and magic is an art by the way and and it's an art form and so uh, revere the 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 person's art who who does like Mathers and Westcott you know I love their work but uh, but Mathers himself was a bit dingy. And and uh, and Westcott was well, no Westcott was not a lot nicer person. Westcott was a coroner, of course, and he had to he had to deal with uh, everything, including Jack the Ripper, and then come back and be spiritual. And that takes a lot of uh, work. But the big point that I'm making here is, and I want to make this very clear, that esoteric initiatory organizations are not automatically cults. They're just not. They have a tradition, and and that tradition is maintained, and the person who is is the head of it, if he's inspired to come up with uh, a version of that tradition, which the rest of you enjoy and want to, want to, and want to promote and want to do, then that's fine. 
And you shouldn't be initiated into anything that you don't know what you're being initiated into. And that was another thing that these, these cults did, like strict observance. Well, John, after Johnson got through with strict observance, that's what they did. They and they initiated, and, of course, uh, the Illuminati were the worst offenders at that. They would lure you in thinking that you were they were going to have true Christianity, and you'd end up being, you know, like a, like a Bolshevik ready to throw a bomb. And and uh, so that's that, that's where you get into this cult thing, where you where you the one one leader is virtually divine, and whatever he says is the way it is. And let me tell you something about the way magic really works. There was a great anthropologist by the name of Malinowski. Malinowski said. There can never be a church of magic because every magician wants to have his own church. Well, Malinowski was right. And, you know, so in spite of Malinowski, we, we, <laughs> we, we, we do. But the only way that another magician will believe your charter myth or, or accept your charter myth, you don't want to believe it. Nobody believes charter myths. I mean, you accept it and work with it. The only way they will is... Is with a qualification. Well, I'll believe this for a while, and then I'll go out and I'll, and I'll come up with my own, and then I'll see if people like that enough to where they'll believe it. And, and so consequently, we what we do is a willing suspension of disbelief. It's like people that go around Nepal and Dharamsala and collect in Tibetan initiations. And every single one of them, you know, has a different psychic center system and has a different... Uh, and different deities and different way of doing things, but you do, you know, you do it for six months and you do their their program and you go all through it and you know while you're doing it you're believing it all that and then you get that you master that tantra and then you go on to the next one and they're all different and, and but we have a lot of people in this country and that just don't understand this at all they don't understand. Uh, the plural and sophisticated spirituality. They don't understand the whole idea that 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 we are all, all of us, equally ensouled. We all have, we all have. No matter how, you know, we weren't all born equal as far as as intelligence and as far as as abilities and talents and all that. We we're all born differently, but. But but there's one thing we all have in common, and that is an equal measure of God inside us. And that means that nobody, I don't care how intelligent or how inspired or how whatever, has any more God in them than you do. And and this is what Jesus was trying to teach. But nobody would listen to him. They wanted you know they just wanted to make a God out of him so so they could use him for political power. And and this, you know, I, 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 it kind of aches when when I when I think about Jesus's message when I read the Gospels, and I realize what he's saying, I, I, and, and I realize what that was done with it. Uh, here is a case where they deified a man who really didn't want to be deified, because he knew that we were all we were all had the same the same amount of God inside us. And if we can all understand that, the 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 uh, 
the Indians have a the Indian Indians have a have a, a, a word for that. Namaste. The God within me salutes the God within you. If we could all learn that, then we wouldn't have to have masters, and uh, we wouldn't have to look up to certain human beings and think that they have more God in them than we do. And and we wouldn't have to worry about cults, and we wouldn't have to worry about about the leaders of cults doing things like. Jones and James Jonestown and 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 well I'm not going to mention the name any others but you you know the ones I I mean I'm sure so please please understand that that so-called secret esoteric societies providing their you know providing their there and on this side of the law there are some of them of course that aren't but but the, the the ones that are that are out and like the Golden Dawn and 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 you know Rosicrucians and the Church of Hermetic Sciences and the rest of it that we are not we're not cults we're really not we're esoteric societies and so if you understand that then you you then perhaps you you would understand better what we're really trying to do we're trying to lead people to the light. And this is what Masonry is trying to do. And Masonry tries to do it in a kind of more conservative and a more, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a much less uh, less radical way, but it's the same thing. Masonry is trying to lead lead good men to the light. And, and when we say the light, with a capital L, L-I-G-H-T. What we mean is the light of God within yourself. That's what we mean. And the light of God within yourself shines the same way in all men and women all over the world. And if we could only, only understand that, we would stop killing each other and we would stop trying to say that Oh, your religion is is worse than my religion. I my my religion is the only way, and all that all of that just just really is is wrong. We should have respect for the other person's religion because perhaps it's better for them. Perhaps that's the best way they have of finding the light because of the way part of the world they're in and the way they're brought up and the way they're you know their culture and all that. That's the best way for them. But they should understand that ours is the best way for us. But we should all understand that the light is the same. We should all understand that. And there can't be any, so there can't be any infallible gurus, and there can't be any infallible masters or anything like that. Just, it's just not, it's just not part of, of the inner truth of our tradition. So, um, I know I'm, I'm sounding kind of inspired now, but, but, but no, well. My inspiration is no better than your inspiration. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that, that we got the point across now. And you know, well, to review what we said, this this particular phenomenon started off with Mysterious Johnson's version of the strict observance, Mysterious Johnson. And from Mysterious Johnson, it went to, to, West, to, 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 no, uh, what's the to, Conspiratorial Weishaupt and his thing, <laughs> and then it went to to Helena Blavatsky, 
and then it jumped to the to the Mathers version of the Golden Dawn, and then then by that time it was loosed upon the world, and that's the way it got started. And we have been trying to get it back in the box for a long time, and maybe tonight we've we maybe a little bit, maybe perhaps we've accomplished a little bit of that closing Pandora's box. I hope so. Anyway, next week. Uh, we'll be back on the same the same station, and hopefully we will have a hopefully we'll have a very 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 uh, important guest, and we'll see how that works out. And until then, good magic.